Hello and welcome to the People, Place and Nature podcast. One group seemingly always in the spotlight at the moment are our farmers who are juggling the challenges of food production, economics and of course environmental considerations. But technology may be able to help them tackle these issues more effectively and help make funds more available for them to do so, which is one of the really big challenges. So that's what we're going to be talking about today with Tim Hopkins. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for joining us, Tim. Wonderful to have you here today. Um, Today's going to be a really interesting conversation about land management because you're involved so heavily in this area. And we we met, I think it was at WWF, at an event with WWF. And we sort of had a chat and we realized we were based in the same, or working in the same area. Um, And it started a string of pub-related rants and conversations, didn't it, about what's going on, how we need to collaborate more. And that led on to more and more things. And we've kind of kept in touch ever since. So... We've had quite an interesting relationship since then on the different aspects we're involved with. So it'd be really interesting to hear about what you're up to. So I was thinking maybe we could start with the land app, perhaps? Yeah, definitely. So where to start? So I was always very conscious as I was growing up that land management was kind of on a downward trajectory. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw firsthand being brought up on a farm how difficult it was to make well-informed decisions, you know, whether it was on specific elements of the environment or the farming operations or how we engage the public. And as I was kind of growing up and thinking through some of those problems, it became really apparent that there was something that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to travel around the world and I'm sure we'll pick up on that later, but I started to realize that the problems that I was facing at home were not unique to a farm in Surrey. Mm -hmm. They were something that really actually was causing massive issues in different parts of the world. I I realized that the only way to create a mass scale positive impact in how land is managed is through technology. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was not in the technology world and so it was a bit of a a leap of faith to to decide that this would be the direction to take. But essentially what the thesis was and is, is that if we can provide land managers with the information about their holding what they've got, the landscape they sit in, the opportunities that are available to them, and then essentially support them through um, local advisors to design well-informed plans that align to the landscape, Mm -hmm. that potentially and ideally are funded by either corporates or government, we can have this mass transition to best practice in land management. And, And that was always kind of the thesis that like, that drove us in the early days and still drives us today is that with all the ecological damage that's happening around the world, biodiversity loss, the climate change, the damage to rivers and ecosystems, I personally believe it can be very quickly turned around Mm -hmm. if only everyone that manages that pocket of land can make well-informed decisions. We know nature recovers so quickly. You know, if the right management techniques are put in place, soil sequesters carbon very quickly, but you fundamentally need land managers en masse to collaborate and implement great strategies mm-hmm. that are going to lead to those outcomes. And that's essentially what the Land App is, is a easy to use digital mapping platform for land managers, their advisors to work together to build these plans and submit those to funders. So yeah, that's essentially kind of what drives us and what mm-hmm. the platform essentially operates, the, the idea that it operates on and essentially what we're doing with today. That's it. And it's, it's incredibly interesting because we've looked at it several times together yeah. and been involved in various discussions and there's so many issues around sort of streamlining aren't they yep. there's been loads and loads of problems with which makes farmers lives very hard they kind of lose interest in trying to des- create these design solutions because there's so much bureaucracy yep. and it's so complicated and they go one place for plans and reports and then yep. they come back from somewhere else and they're slightly different and they have to go off again and this kind of streamlines all of that so it makes things easier more accessible and also better informed as you say yeah definitely i mean Land is such an interesting kind of asset if you want to put it into that class. It's, you can only really use land in one way. It can either be a building or a woodland block or a field of maize or, or whatever. You know, it's, you, you do have finite uses for land. You can, and really the challenge is working out how to use land in the most effective way mm-hmm. at a holding level so that you can derive enough revenue that supports the business. But ideally what you want is that that land design to be connected to the landscape so you know how do you kind of create uh, riverbank restoration but not just on your tiny you know 100 meters of riverbank but you're aligned to a project that connects potentially kilometers so land is really interesting and unique because 
there's such an opportunity cost on land being used badly. There are so many negative externalities as a result of bad land management practice. And it sort of needs a mass transition. Little oases are not good enough for nature. We need this kind of mass movement towards this best practice. So yeah, all of those things you said is exactly what we're trying to enable is just to help people understand what they can do on their finite patch mm -hmm. that allows them to have the maximum possible benefit both for themselves as a business but also the wider landscape. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the wider landscape side is obviously a real interest to me being a landscape architect. And I know people like Merrick Denton Thompson, who we also had on the podcast, um, have been involved in all these things too, in these wider discussions. And how it integrates with the landscape is potentially going to be really interesting because yeah. whilst I appreciate not everything's quite there yet and it's all being developed, which is something we can talk about, yeah. um, is that we're kind of looking at landscape character areas and how that can potentially yeah. form the basis yeah. of this regeneration. So, and landscape character areas are different to catchment areas, which a lot of people immediately think of when they think of kind of landscape scale, yeah. because they take into account sort of geology, ecology, and those more scientific bases. And obviously they also form part of a catchment. So it responds more to the unique situation of those areas than perhaps a catchment approach would do, yeah. which is just the basin which catches yeah. water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's in, and that's, of, that's a really powerful foundation to start from. You know, what, what does the local landscape essentially want to deliver? In a sense, if you could leave it to its own devices. Um, what's interesting, but also the challenge in there is, and this is kind of a, something we're working on right now, is um, there's nature recovery networks which are being developed at the moment, which are trying to essentially align the landscape characters to the market needs mm -hmm. and requirements and try and create a framework for investment into nature that takes into consideration all of that. The reason that that's important is we know that corporates need to be investing back into nature and also of course government wants to be investing into nature and the environment and the question at the moment is where do they invest their money to have the maximum possible benefits? So we want to take into consideration these landscape scale, um, sorry the landscape character areas um, the nature recovery networks, the local priorities. Um, we want the water companies to contribute and say, well, you know, this is where we're having massive runoff because of X, Y, Z. We need to implement a solution here. We need to fund farmers to do certain things. So the challenge really is to take into consideration all of those needs and requirements from the landscape and essentially make it really simple and digestible for farmers to mm -hmm. know, okay, cool. I happen to sit here within the landscape and right here, I'm going to get funded to do this. Right here, I'm going to get funded to do here. You know this, and and that's the challenge of the whole sector is how do we simplify that decision making, mm -hmm. and make sure the funding can have the most positive benefit, so we get the biggest return on investment for the capital invested into nature. Exactly, but you get this really interesting challenge because obviously not all farmers are necessarily going to want to do. Yeah what we want them to do, yep. which is part of the challenge. But that's why things like public money for public good are going to be yep. really important and the changes to the common agricultural policy and all this type yep. of thing and how that is going to filter down. And this is what our original kind of conversations were all about was yeah. it, there has to kind of be a design solution potentially, which can take into account a range of different variables yep. and design solutions to try and deliver what a range of farmers may want to do. Yep. And that's really going to be well, one of many challenges. Um, possibly one of the later challenges, I suppose, because um, even after the funding and things are sorted out, people don't want to do it. It's a whole nother, whole nother issue. Yeah, and it's although <laughs> so many of these conversations end up coming back to money. Yeah. Um, and I guess maybe environmentalists and whatnot, and maybe even slightly myself, have always kind of wanted to say, well, it's just the best thing to do for nature. You yeah. know, we can reduce costs downstream and, you know, land managers should just do this mm. but the truth is they all run as businesses right they yeah. need to pay their salaries they need to send their kids to school they need to keep the lights on so the the, the biggest challenge and this is where the obviously the concept of natural capital comes in is you know how do we value nature such that actually the payment that the land manager receives fairly remunerates them mm -hmm. for what they're doing um, because unless we get that economic system in place no one's going to do anything exactly yeah and 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 there comes the challenge because behavior will always mold to incentives and in a capitalist society like we're in at the moment and everyone's got free choice they can freely choose what they do mm. or don't do and and fundamentally to some degree maybe not entirely but that will predominantly come down to a financial decision you know what would my yield of this crop be how much would i make would i get more if it was put into trees and 
it's not to say that everyone is kind of mercenary and just wants the money, but it's such an important factor in how we evolve the way that nature ends up looking and the mm-hmm. outcomes that get delivered. So it's this really knotty problem of kind of in the point that I just made about landscape priorities and funding opportunities is we need a land manager to very, very simply be able to say, oh, if I put woodland here, what would that deliver to me? Who's yeah. going to benefit? That's going to shelter my animals, which are going to be more productive and exactly. less fatalities and all of this type exactly. of thing. Exactly. And that is yeah. really difficult to do in an ad hoc way. Mm-hmm. So it, fun- it requires science, it requires data, it requires knowledge and know-how. And, and that's really what we're trying to do in the Land App is um, configure the structure of the software so that those financial decisions or those business decisions can be made really easily by a farmer but also just to make it super simple for the water company to notify the farmer of that funding opportunity the local developer who's just taken down x amount of trees to notify the farmer of the so that's what we're trying to do yeah exactly kind of it's more a centralized system basically so it's a one-stop shop where they can find everything and it makes everyone's lives hopefully much easier yeah um and the thing is the thing is as well it's also important to kind of be aware that it's not necessarily you know we talk about a lot about regenerative agriculture yeah. and it doesn't necessarily mean planting trees everywhere correct. or rewilding everything correct a lot of it is, is taking existing processes and making them more effective correct um, and more efficient yep. and a lot of that can be you know as we talked about tree planting it often comes down to trees mm-hmm. you know a lot of arable systems could have see more trees planted within field systems yep. which is going to protect them against drought and soil erosion and reduce pollution which is the runoff of the water companies and that means farmers will still be able to produce that crop but hopefully that crop will be more resilient in the years to come. And we're seeing more and more sort of crop failures, you know, generally and and species starting to struggle and reach the sort of limits of their their ability. So a lot of it is about those sort of things. And there will be some instances where we can look at certain options. Like um, we had Ted Green on talking about, and Jill Butler, talking about um, a bit about the Nepa state and rewilding and all this type of thing. And they talk about wood pasture um, and how wood pasture is, you know, fantastic. But it's only... In my opinion, it's only really applicable to more um, pastoral systems. Yep. Whereas there also needs to be a solution to more arable systems as well, because after all, at the end yeah. of the day, we still have to produce food. Yep. And globally, food there's going to be a bigger and bigger food crisis. Yeah. Um, so we've got to think about how to make our food supply more resilient. Yeah. No, it's it, absolutely. And I was actually with Ivan De Clay mm-hmm. yesterday evening. We had a barbecue. We had Nepa State burgers, which were wonderful. And um, so, yeah, it's, and that's a really interesting model. But of course, it can't be used in the east of England, where yeah. it's obviously heavy, heavily cereal. So, so the I think, that, and of course, food production is fundamental. And sometimes within this kind of environmental conversation, food is kind of left yeah. to the last point, which is of course madness because yeah, we, we don't <laughs> we don't want to be importing our food. You know, mm. that's even worse what we're trying to achieve. So, I, I think. Um, the food production conversation, I mean, I am definitely not best placed to just, you know, talk about it per se, but I just think what we want and what we're trying to get to is a more systemic approach to the way that we use our land and resources. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're doing projects with Anglian Water who are trying to interface much more directly with the land managers to try and ensure that um, the, the day-to-day activities of those land managers who obviously are just trying to produce great yields and produce great food, don't then have a knock-on detrimental impact in the river system that ends up incurring loads of costs for Anglian water and then means that the you know consumers have to pay more. So I think what we're trying to do here is we're trying to have like a systemic approach to the way that we consider using land and make sure that the incentives are able to be shared in a cost-efficient way mm-hmm. so that a market can form because you know the big arable producers in the east of England who we all massively rely on yeah the question is are there any opportunities for them to tweak their system that actually delivers them better outcomes better yields reduces the negative costs further downstream for other players increases biodiversity and helps us hit some of those bigger targets i personally think it is all possible Mm -hmm. if we use this kind of systemic approach to understanding how do we get multiple parties to work closer together and make sure those market incentives and payment structures are there and easily accessible by the land managers. So all of a sudden, it's not a pain to do an agroforestry system. Mm-hmm. It's not a pain to do a water buffer strip that's going to cost you loads of money. It's simple, it's easy, it's cost efficient, it's got multiple benefits. So I think the food production system has got to be um, interwoven into this environmental conversation we're having and making sure carbon is sequestered as a byproduct of its, you know, the output. But we just take away all of that arduous 
burdensome administration that is basically the blocker to lots of mm-hmm. people moving towards best practice. So, yeah, I would just say it's, it's kind of all part of the same picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And on, on, on funding, funding is always a really interesting one because one of the big problems in the environmental world that I, that I often see is, one, there's never enough money, which is yep. a problem for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the cost of doing things really is astronomical. Yes, yeah. I mean, we're working on a big project at the moment. It's, to, um, it's part of um, Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, we're sort of looking at bits of the river to regenerate, creating all new wetlands, and it's phenomenally expensive. And actually, when you, look at, when you think about the money just in monetary terms, you think, yeah. God, that's so much money. But actually, to do anything, it's not that much. And when you start looking at 70% of the UK, yeah. you really need an awful lot of funding to, yep. to kind of go that far. And there's lots of people willing to fund, but they're often willing to fund very specific things. Yes. And I think that's one of the real stumbling blocks. And one of the stumbling blocks I often see is and hear about is kind of the Forestry Commission. Yeah. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of great work, but at the same time, they're very limited in that they'll fund forests. Yeah. And we don't need forests. We need less dense systems to yes. try and work with these agricultural systems. We have to look at more yeah, agroforestry, canopy cover objectives and that type of thing. Yep. You know, in my opinion, could be wrong, but that's my opinion on it, yep. um, to be able to actually deliver these objectives because we can't forest everything. Yes. And we have to look at tree cover, yep. not forest cover. Yep. And you know, if you look at the research coming from Ted Green and Jill Butler, who we had on, it's really interesting and a lot of what guided NEP, that's basically that. It's yeah. not forest. It's trees here and there, hedgerows being overgrown, and all of this type of thing, yep. um, which cumulatively have a massive impact, but still allow the land to be used in a productive way, but make it more yeah. efficient. It's, it, and this is a massive point. So I was with uh, a group of farmers yesterday. So we're doing a land, a 4,500-acre landscape scale project. It's about 22 landowners mm-hmm. who have come together and using the Land App um, have basically created a baseline across holding by holding, so what have we got exactly? How does it look and what's it stru- how's it structured? Um, and then they've all designed um, a future scenario. So where we want to put hedges, where we want to put infield trees, where we want to do natural regeneration. Um, uh, there's kind of connectivity woodland blocks as well, just mm-hmm. to kind of create that landscape connectivity. So they've all done that holding by holding. And within the land app, we can aggregate that into a landscape view. So we've done that and you can see therefore the baseline across the 4,500 acres. So much more granular than ordnance survey data, more granular than um, RPA data. And then on top of that is the future vision that they all have. And the beauty of it is that where a land manager said, oh, I wanted to put a hedge here and their neighbor says, oh, I want to put a hedge here in this system, they can go, oh, actually, yeah, if I nudge my my hedge up 10 meters and you bring yours down 10 meters we can create this connectivity so mm-hmm. this is kind of what the information transfer between multiple parties is enabling so we can get these aligned seat, um, designs and what's exciting about that is we're working with a corporate that's based in um just sort of 20 minutes away from the the, the sites an international organization who are very heavily committed to delivering great outcomes for nature and it's looking like they're about to fund um, four kilometers of new hedges mm-hmm. and potentially I think it's 10 wetland restoration projects within this landscape. So anyway, point of all that is to say that what you fundamentally need, so big corporates also don't want to just fund a farm. They mm-hmm. don't want a one-to-one relationship. They want to enhance yeah. the whole landscape, right? That's how the benefits are going to be derived. But you want to keep the admin as low as possible for everyone. So baseline, very easy to do on the land app. Future design, very easy to do on the land app all in the UK HAB format. So we're working with Bill Butcher, who set up UK HAB, which is used to underpin the biodiversity uh, 3.0 metric and biodiversity net gain. So everything's in the same consistent language. You can calculate the uplift in biodiversity units and then present that very cleanly to the corporates. And they go, yeah, off that palette of options, I want to fund the hedges and the wetland projects. Because it's already digital, it can be accounted for a price per meter, which is what we've done for hedges, Mm -hmm. has been um, listed. And essentially, we're going through the kind of closing stages of that deal right now. So, and just to kind of try and explain how quickly this has happened, I went for a walk with the landowner, the kind of the key landowner within that landscape, about 12 weeks ago. And we're already at the stage of having a potential deal with Mm. a big corporate. And... It's exciting because we've got the Surrey County Council involved in it. We've got the Surrey Wildlife Trust involved in it. We've got the facilitation funds involved in it, Natural England involved in it. It's all dovetailing into the new agri-environment scheme, or new ELMS, the government scheme. So what we're seeing is to make these projects viable, efficient, scalable, the more that you can reduce that information flow between all those 
fundamentally relevant stakeholders, the quicker you can get to a point of transaction with a mm -hmm. full audit trail. So kind of, I guess I'm looking through potentially a bit of a blinkered lens, but everything we're doing is trying to enable great outcomes and we're just trying to make the process as efficient as possible. And that's the model we're using at the moment. Yeah, no, it makes absolute sense. And it's, as you say, it's all about streamlining because yep. so much time is lost in the sort of bureaucratic bureaucratic yep. world, really. Yeah. Um, so how are you seeing um, sort of the new government objectives tying with this? So obviously Elms is coming up. Yep. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe explain a bit about a bit about that because you've got it better yep. than I do. Yeah. Um, and kind of how it's going and if it's things are looking positive or Yeah, definitely. Or not. <laughs> yeah, I think it is looking positive. I think mm -hmm. there's lots to do, but it's a new scheme. It's the first time it's really ever happened. It's very exciting. It's yeah. hugely exciting. And yeah. I think Defra and Janet Hughes are just doing an amazing job to really... Um, I mean, I would not want to be in their shoes. Like the complexity, <laughs> the amount of stakeholders you've got to keep happy. Yeah. The fact that you're still answering to Treasury. Mm -hmm. The fact we've just had COVID, you know, we're in COVID, whatever. It's not an easy position. But they, so Janet Hughes is doing an amazing job. And I met up with her about uh, six weeks ago um, at the Houghton State in, just out in, in Norfolk. And, um, and essentially Elms environmental land management scheme is the new way that farmers or land managers are going to get paid to deliver public benefits. So previously we were in the common agricultural policy, a load of cash came to the UK, distributed, and that was the basic payment scheme that paid farmers. And you just got paid on an acreage basis. You didn't have to do anything particularly, you just had to not be negligent. Whereas this new fund is all about delivering public benefits. So it's public money for public goods. And what that's causing is for land managers for the first time to be very strategic with what they do where. Mm -hmm. So, you know, oh my gosh, you know, as a farm, we're only going to get paid to deliver public benefits. Um, okay, well, what, what is our asset base? What could we enhance? Who's going to tell us where we should do certain things? So it's causing every land manager to start to have to think very strategically about what they offer to this new market um, and, and therefore what's their future income stream going to come from that. And then the set, so that's so Elms is a philosophy. That's kind of how it works. And there's more detail, obviously. But but what's exciting, I think, is that the way that, that Defra are configuring it is that it's a scheme structured to enable corporates to also invest into that landscape. Mm -hmm. So it's not just public money that's going to create the environmental uplift. It's going to be an enabler. It's going to be a fund that's an enabler for corporates to invest as well. And. <laughs> that brings a world of different challenges in. You know, what's the data language that's being used so everyone knows? What's the audit trail? What's the reporting structure? Um, how do you notify land managers of the multiple opportunities? How do you make sure they're not double funded, triple funded, quadruple funded? And again, you know, again, probably slightly blinkered view, but you fundamentally need a single, a, a simple audit trail mm -hmm. that allows a land manager to, to essentially say, this is what I'm willing to contribute into the market for the models to... Uh, estimate the benefits that are going to be derived obviously the payment rates and then essentially maybe 70 percent of that new buffer strip or wildflower meadow or woodland bullock or hedge maybe 70 percent is funded by you know government mm -hmm. and 30 percent by easyjet or 30 percent by mm -hmm. you know the water company and so there's quite a challenge inside that model to make sure that the audit trail is simple that the contract structure is understandable for the land manager and the, the administration is low so that once that agreement is you know signed that the verification is able to be accessed by the funding parties so great I've put in my new hedge or my new wildflower meadow or my new woodland block DEFRA can be notified that I'm actually delivering against contract and also EasyJet or whoever know that their that contract is being fulfilled the reason that that's important is DEFRA are going to be reporting to Treasury. This is public money that's being used, so we need a very clear reporting structure. And also the corporates are, maybe it's philanthropic money, but really I guess what a corporate would want is to make sure that their investments are fairly recognised in mm. their annual report, their shareholders get updated, their customers get updated, because at the moment it's a new market, it's still an investment for a competitive advantage, yeah. predominantly. Um, so Elms is a, it's an amazing opportunity. It's opening up this new market for corporates to invest into. It's got a world of complexity that, you know, makes, will make it, you know, that it needs to get through to make it possible. And I guess where we sit as the land app is to try to make that process as simple and easy 
for all parties because if the admin cost is high, the corporates aren't going to invest. Mm-hmm. If the admin costs are high, the public are going to be you know, very frustrated that a lot of this precious public money is getting wasted in bureaucratic systems. Um, and I think we're in quite a good position because in the Land app, we have um, about 40% of farmland in England has now been mapped onto the platform by our customers. Oh, wow. um, so, and that's actually only the farms that have put their field boundaries in. So there's a lot more that's just rural estates. That, but anyway, the point is what we want to do with that kind of um, customer base is to make sure as many people can kind of get into this new scheme because we need a market as quickly as possible for elms to work, for the natural capital market to work, for essentially nature to enhance. So yeah, so elms is an amazing opportunity to bring this whole thing together. There's just a lot of complexity we need to work through as a system Mm -hmm. until it's a fully functioning marketplace that can really allow nature to thrive and can be replicated internationally as well. Well, that's it. I mean, there's going to be so many companies that look to invest in this because it's reliable. Yeah. You know, a lot, a lot of um, corporations and various organizations I've met that fund, um, well, I won't name any names, but fund various organizations yeah. are often becoming sort of increasingly worried that they're not necessarily knowing where their money's going yeah. and what it's going to. And whilst they might be giving to a charity or something else, you still don't necessarily always know what it is. And also, it's something you can see. That's yes. one of the really fantastic things about land management. You know, yeah. you can see the trees that have been planted. You can yep. see the wetland, you can hear the birds, you know, yep. it's something that's tangible. Yep. Um, and you know, the, the whole way we're looking at using land is changing. It's not just about ecology and biodiversity and carbon. You yep. know, if COVID taught us anything, it's about we need to spend more time outdoors. Yep. Um, and people have really realized the value of that. Yep. So it's also about how do we connect up the outdoors and these rural estates and rural bits of land to yep. cities, to people, to, to increase and also farms have got to diverse, diversify as well you know this is an increasing um, area of their income a lot of farms generate more of their income through diversification means you know holiday lets and events paintballing all this type of thing yep. you know so there's a huge market for those type of things too to help support farms yep. so it's all about finding again you know it's not going to be funded the same way but um, farms are having to rethink how they manage their systems and how they try and get people more involved and it's also pushing sort of down that line isn't it how do people use these spaces it's huge and actually the corporate that we're um working with and i wish i could name them because they're so wonderful and they've been so great in the process but one of their primary um wants out of this investment that they're going to make is that actually their employees can be really engaged in the process Mm. they Mm. can survey the hedges they can be part of planting it you know that camaraderie that forms the mental health benefits the Mm. physical health benefits and i think that public engagement and that kind of um connection to nature is is really what we need as a society because there's so much eco-anxiety that people are incredibly aware of but at the moment don't have any kind of ways of dealing with and i think these projects are a perfect um, platform for that kind of reconnection to nature or that um, ability to actually um, give something back you know with their time and resources so that's one thing the other thing actually i'm um, a very good friend of mine who i was actually with in wales over the weekend he runs a company called Impact Marathon Series. And what they do is they basically set up projects um, in different parts of the world with a specific focus. So in cities, it's much more about social well-being and welfare and whatnot. Um, but they, they're doing a project in the Isle of Mull and they're doing a big reforestation project. Mm-hmm. So what happens is loads of you know people from different parts of the world or country come to that site. They spend a week doing voluntary work and then it finishes with a, either a marathon, a half marathon, a 10K or a big walk. and it's an amazing model to bring people into nature, engage as a community, feel part of something bigger. And it's a model we're looking to bring to um, this project in Surrey. You know, we've got this 4,500 acres, this huge environmental enhancement project, lots of stakeholders. Can we now get, you know, the employees of this corporate, the local people, the friends and family to come and actually properly participate in the landscape? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's critical because we know you know, we always will invest in what we care about. And the more people can really learn to care about nature and the positive impacts it has, the more investment there's going to be. So, yeah. Definitely. I mean, we were talking yesterday on the podcast with um, Sophie Beasley, who um, we've got an episode with that you'll be able to see. Um, And she used to run a youth program for the Wildlife Trust that I was part of. And it kind of turned my life around and got me from being a naughty kid back into education and all that type of thing. Um, 
And this was exactly what we basically did, but it was on the Wildlife Trust estate. Yep. So actually, if it means more schools and more community groups and more disadvantaged kids and more troubled kids can kind of get out into the wild, yeah. get their hands on, get a bit of responsibility, you know, that has a huge value. And again, you know, the, the episode we talked to Merrick about, we talked about the Learning Through Landscapes um, yep. Trust that he set up with David Attenborough. And um, that's all about getting kids learning outdoors. And 80% of the curriculum can be taught outdoors and they've yeah. got all the resources to do that. So actually it's about, you know, there's a huge opportunity for schools to connect with these places too. Yeah. And, you know, that's another a whole different side to it. Yeah, probably yeah, come yeah, much yeah. Later. yeah. But, you know, there is this opportunity to sort of tie so many issues together yeah. to really create something that benefits everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm mostly involved in the urban realm at the moment, but, um, you know, my background's forestry and you can see so much starting to change. And we, you know, another episode we did to try and get everyone to listen to all of our episodes. Of yeah. Um, you know, we did one with um, Dougal Driver, where, and he's from Grown in Britain. And he was talking about, you know, the range of opportunities for timber and its uses for the future. You know, yeah. used for LCD screens of computers, satellites, yeah. cars. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, trees are made from the same stuff that oil was made from, essentially. So if you can break them down, you can, we can replace a lot of plastics. Yep. But we need more trees. And it doesn't matter where those trees come from if you're breaking them down. Yep. So we don't need necessarily as many traditional kind of forestry systems. We can go for these sparser, scraggly, horrible trees and still make use of the timber and all this yep. type of thing. So there's such a huge opportunity to rethink sort of the environmental economy and put yep. some of these things in place to really tie the whole thing together. And yep. that's going to be vital yeah. you know and knowing where those things can come from again that's something something much later that mm. can kind of which we've talked about before which can kind of be looked at of where some of these resources might come from and finding out what's available and starting to plan that longer landscape scale management yeah into a lot of these things yeah i definitely i trees as an example so this landscape specifically that i keep referring to mm -hmm. um there's a lot of undermanaged woodland and actually mm. you know they don't know how to make money from it um and, you know, yesterday I was talking to, to one of the, the landowners and, you know, he was saying, yeah, we had to sell a bunch of trees because we needed to thin them, but we got such a low price, we hardly made anything yeah. on it. And it's just, fundamentally, the problem is a lack of coordination. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. And I think, you know, what we really hope is that if, for example, someone was running a project where within a specific landscape they wanted to uh, have certain management practices implemented or they wanted to buy trees or whatever what we hope is that you know they could literally just draw on that shape onto a map all the landowners would get notified of that opportunity and hey presto they can engage in it and i think what we want is more of this kind of landscape scale joined up thinking that allow these market opportunities to become real because mm -hmm. you know it's pain if there's 10 hectares there 10 hectares you know 100 miles away 10 hectares we want to try and create these more sustainable local economies and i think the only way to do that is by working in this kind of collaborative nature across landscapes, making sure that opportunities are really clear for people um, and that ability to interface with those opportunities and funding sources are really, really accessible. Um, so, yeah, and I think once that's possible, there'll be these amazing marketplaces and it'll be so simple. Um, and we're just going through that kind of transition phase now between everything being arduous and, you know, you know, impossible to see through to, I think, where it'll be super transparent, super clear and these trades are going to happen really efficiently. And I think that's why I think, you know, once we get the systems in place, it's going to be simple to transition to something far more sustainable. Indeed, but there's so much application for it internationally as well, yeah. which is something we were talking about when we first met. Um, because a lot of what you're doing is, well, as everything is now, is sort of geolocated, yeah. which means there's a huge opportunity for, for funding to places um, well, anywhere in the world, really. Yeah. Um, because you have that ability to see, you know, if you're funding someone to plant trees or regenerate part of their farm, um, be it in Asia, Africa, wherever it may be, you can see that it's actually been done. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is a conversation that I've been involved with a few times lately where people are sort of going, well, you know, we've invested a lot in charity in the past, but we're still, yeah. you know, we've been investing for so long yeah. um, in some of these places and we're not really seeing, yeah. but you can't see because it's so far away and not necessarily able to get there. It's actually, a, you can create a direct link yeah. between the people on the ground and these funding sources yeah. to be able to implement a lot of these things. Yeah. And once we have that in place here in the UK, um, it's a fantastic model for anywhere else in the world. Uh, yeah. So there's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so important and something that people don't really always realize that the value of this is amazing. You know, 70% yeah. of the UK is farmland. Yeah. So that's all going to be impacted by this. Yeah, and yeah. forestry most likely will be as well, yep. um, especially as the way things are changing. So, you know, that's 85% of yeah. um, the UK's land area. 
which is enormous. Yeah. Um, so it, it's incredible. And when you start factoring that to many other countries, it, it really ha- shows yeah. such huge promise. Yeah, it's so exciting. And I think, I think obviously we're, we're trying to do what we're doing in the UK to kind of catalyze this new market and, and, and kind of just enable space for all these players to actually engage, you know, that, mm. but, but, you know, it's great to solve a problem in the UK. Of course mm. it is, you know, we've got a lot of objectives we need to hit and we want to be leading, you know, the world in this kind of stuff. But, but for us to kind of do anything to even slightly impact on climate change or biodiversity loss or, you know, it has, the, the, the most important thing is the model. Because mm. if we can get blended finance where public and private sector can both invest effectively into landscape enhancement the land managers responsible for each of those blocks of land scattered throughout the world can be notified of those opportunities. The um, sort of top-down approach where priorities can be highlighted to work out where the best point of intervention is to start. Um, I really think, you know, because most of the corporates that really have an obligation to invest in nature are international and they have a real international remit. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, every government, you know, needs has a huge obligation to, to deliver some of these goals. And I, I think that because nature does such an amazing job of restoring itself, if its foundations are set properly, actually with very minimal relative cash, we can create massive global economic enhancement. Yeah. The, the reason, I mean, I personally think that a, re, a huge reason why there's a lot of um, social issues is fundamentally because resources are not available. There's not enough water, there's not enough food, there's not enough building materials. Um, there's far more likelihood of... Uh, you know, corruption or, um, you know, whether it's war or just, you know, conflict. And actually, if you have a thriving natural environment that produces the materials that people essentially need, it gives a foundation for people. Pressure, yeah. It's one less, yeah, exactly. And, and then a big the, pressure. Yeah. Then the, funda- the most fundamental pressure, basically. Exactly. Survivability. It, it, yeah. Otherwise, you're always, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And you're constantly scraping at the bottom. Education isn't going to be the thing you're focused on. You know, contribution is not going to be the fo- thing you focus on. Yeah. In- innovation is not going to be. And so fundamentally, what we need to do, I believe, is that we need to make sure that we've got the natural environment working properly. We're restoring degraded ecosystems, re-greening, you know, whether it's re-greening deserts as far as that, but restoring mm. ecosystems for sure. That will give a foundation for people to start to advance what they're able to do, be educated, connecting with innovation and technology, be able to get educated wherever they are in the world, be part of this global conversation. And I think that will then lead to a much more thriving economy. You know, I think if you undermine, the way to undermine an economy is undermine, you take away the natural environment. Whereas if you can put those building blocks in place, you can cause um, economies to thrive, I think. So that's why I think the model is so important that we enable, we work out how to get governments and corporates to invest effectively into the best points of intervention within a, land, a landscape. We enable that to be very easily understood and accessed by the land managers, designed, delivered, verified. The funding happens effectively. And if we can do that en masse, that will give society what it needs to thrive, but it'll be the only way we mitigate climate change. Because otherwise, we've got such our economic system. Unfortunately, incentivizes exploitation. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, it's easier to cut down a tree and get paid the amount than keep it there and it essentially not. So we need to reverse that model. And if we do on mass, yeah, I don't see why we wouldn't be able to have a massive positive impact in mitigating climate change in a very short space of time. But fundamentally, it all comes down to that model of how the investment works, and that fundamentally comes down to information exchange. Mm-hmm. Because we're talking about land, it's geospatial. And essentially, that's the core remit of the land app. If we're not doing that, there's no point us being in existence. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I sort of see things playing out into the future. And there's a lot of cash and investment to come into this world. And I, I, I just think that if ever there was one place to intervene within the whole market, it's getting that, mo- that model right. Because then yeah. everything will, everyone can then deploy their resources effectively and we can all get where we, we need to be. Exactly, and I think just to touch on the international side again, you know, it's why the landscape character side of things is so important because there's such a discussion around kind of colonialism and yeah. people from the West coming in and imposing systems yeah. um, and programs and all this type of models on, on other nations. Yeah, yeah. That the landscape character side is, is really vital because it's all rooted in local geology, yeah. um, local ecology and local distinctiveness. So yeah. it's all about 
restoring systems wherever they are. It's not coming and going, ah, oh, woodland's best. It's about looking at what is actually there yeah. and how do we protect and maintain what is or was there. And it's all about that. So it all comes down to sort of local people, um, communities, if we can get this community side of things sorted too. Yeah. So, you know, all of that is vital. Yeah. Um, and that's why it has such, well, it's, the base of that has such promise globally to, to fix so many things. Yeah. And many countries don't even have those sort of things in place yet. So it's yeah. a great example to show how this broader approach to everything applies because, you know, check out the episode with Merrick. Yeah, if you haven't, um, anyone listening as well, because he helped found the first landscape character area yeah. um, here in Hampshire, actually, where we yeah. are now, where we're on Hampshire, Surrey border. So yeah. this actually, this side of the gate, we're in Hampshire. Oh. This side of the gate, we're in Surrey. So, um, you know, interesting part of the world. And um, what, what they've done is, is fascinating because it, it supports the urban side of things too. Because if you think about it traditionally, a lot of the historic buildings we would have had would have been made from local resources. Yep. You know, um, Cotswolds, it's all Cotswold stone. You know, up in Sheffield, it's all the, the stone from there. Um, yep. And you see this local distinctiveness and this local character. So it goes far beyond even just this, you know, the ecology side of things. There's so many facets to it yep. that, that are really, really important. And that's yep. all about what we need to look at now for the future is how we restore these things, how we create local distinctiveness, restore ecosystems in their locality and what should be where and make the landscape how it wants to be, but in a way that also works with us. Yeah, definitely. I think if you play out visions, you know, if we keep the way that we're tending to do stuff at the moment where exploitation is easier for mm. short-term economic gain, it's kind of easy to see where that road leads to. And, and I don't think anyone would particularly want to live in that mm. potential future. Um, and, and the thing is, I just don't think it's necessary. And I think the alternative future is one where there is abundance, there is ecological abundance, there's biodiversity abundance, there's ideally societal and cultural and eco economic abundance. You know, that's really... And I often think kind of the way I guess I slightly think about stuff is, you know, somewhat what are the guiding principles that are going to, you know, I'm going to use to decide what I do? Because all of us in any moment could do whatever we want. Like, yeah. we're not fixed on anything. Sure, we might have some commitments, but... So I, I kind of think, well, if you can shoot for any star, why wouldn't you shoot for one where everything kind of works in harmony, everyone mm. has what they need, people thrive, nature thrives? And I sometimes get myself a bit locked on this idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like what foundations do we all need so we can more effectively transition to us kind of being more sort of... Well, do you want to explain the hierarchy of needs a little bit for anyone that might not yeah, know what it is? Yeah, definitely in my very layman's terms. But, 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 but essentially, I guess the core foundation is if you don't have food, water, air, shelter, if you don't have that, you're going to really struggle. Mm -hmm. You're going to really, really struggle if you don't have air. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, so basically it sort of starts with that foundation that, you know, what are the basic needs of a human? Okay, mm -hmm. once those things are in place, cool. And then I can't remember the exact, you know, levels that it moves up, but then it kind of moves more into, okay, once you've got that, then you've got relationships, you've got friendships, you've got kind of culture, education. Okay, cool. Once you've got those sort of things, then you can have productivity, you can have trade, you can have kind of this um, sort of, uh, this kind of next level that you can move to. And it kind of moves essentially up into you know, self-transcendence, this kind of spiritual level that you can get to once you've kind of got all of the layers covered. And so the reason I think that's a useful framework, and I've probably not explained it very well, but <laughs> is that, you know, the more that we undermine the core foundations of what it is to be a human kind of able to really live a fulfilled life, you know, I don't, I don't understand why we would do that. You know, we're yeah. currently under, you know, that process of doing that. Well, everything else becomes desperate and secondary. Exactly. Yeah. You know, friendships become secondary, education becomes secondary. It's kind of you move into survival mode. And I think we're obviously as a species trying to move out of that. That's constantly mm. how we're wired. So I, I guess, yeah, so I, I think fundamentally it's kind of like what, where's this, you know, where are we aiming for? It's kind of, you know, at least I know it might be a romantic ideal to aim for, towards abundance, but it's a possibility and why wouldn't we? And therefore... With that in mind, what can we put in place that allows that to become possible? And mm. I think, yeah, ecological foundations, then you've got societal, then you've got economic and you've got whatever you've got on top of that. But I guess, so I see a trajectory where everything can go in one direction, which is exploitative, potentially you could use the word corruption, um, but certainly detrimental, or you could go towards abundance. And so why wouldn't we try and get everyone on that kind of 
train essentially mm. and it's, it's it's it won't be perfect but at least if we've got that aim we're going to go better than if we just leave everything yeah. as state square. better to aim high and fall short yeah you not try basically yeah. Isn't it? yeah so i guess that's kind of again how we try and collaboratively work with everyone to move us one rather than yeah work in a you know a competitive way that sort of undermines that principle yeah no it's, well, it's such an important guiding you know principle and set of values isn't it yeah. you know because that's what drives us all yeah you know and you know that's i think why me and you clicked early on because we've kind of got these principles and we know where we want to go and we know what needs to be done and it's just a case of dragging everything along with us as we as yeah. we kind of go isn't it yeah. um you know which is what we're both trying to do in our own way in our own kind of areas um which, and it's fantastic that we met each other when we did because so much is happening now that we're able to kind of influence and and collaborate on yeah um you know it's fantastic Look, stars aligned in a way no fate who knows um <laughs> but um it's really interesting it's really interesting and i wanted to ask how did you get into all of this kind of in the first place because everyone we've spoken to quite often has quite an, an obscure way of getting into kind of yeah. the environmental world and it's not always the way people might think yeah. So how did you get involved well i was brought up on a farm so that was amazing lambs That's jumping. Link. Yeah. yeah yeah so <laughs> lambs jumping on hay bales and, yeah. and everything like that and so that was obviously lovely and very sweet and but what happened specifically actually i think is that um, as I was kind of growing up and, you know, whatever, 16, 17, I was having conversations with my granddad who had farmed the farm his entire life. And he was essentially saying that he could see the demise of small and medium sized farms. You know, essentially the, the way things were rigged up, the commodity market, the food supply chain, um, the bigger powers within the land sector. It was essentially he could see the demise of essentially that world. And you know from my perspective I didn't really want the farm to be sold you know so I was thinking god shit this does not look like the direction that I want to go in and and I guess that kind of struck struck a question in my mind like how could we reverse this and um uh what happened specifically then yeah then I was lucky enough to travel around the world and I realized oh my gosh that the problem that we're facing on our farm is not unique to us mm -hmm. you know it's not looking great in a lot of different places and that was doing you know four-day wilderness trail it was working in farms in australia in france and and i realized oh my god we really need to do something here because this is not a nice to have problem to solve mm. this is a like if we don't solve this this is not good so that was kind of like i guess the catalyzer for me to choose that this was the path to go down um and then i came back from travels and i studied permaculture so which is basically land system designed um which is very much about how do you uh, use design principles and design thinking to align to natural systems. So you're mm -hmm. not always fighting nature, you're aligning to it and actually the output is, you know, better as a result and mm -hmm. long-term resilience. And then luckily uh, within two weeks, there was a regenerative agriculture course. So I went and did that and this was 12 years ago. And that was kind of using those system design principles, but within a broader landscape, within the farmed environment. And I was like, fantastic, this looks brilliant, this is exactly what I've been looking for, let's try and apply this thinking to the farm. And it was then that it was kind of like paper maps, Google Earth, whatever. And so that was kind of where the whole idea of um, the land app came from. But, but really, I think it was the recognition of, if we don't do something, this is not good. Mm -hmm. Something needs to be done. Okay, what could be done? And that just kind of sparks a bunch of ideas. And... Yeah, for whatever reason, I was then pick-headed enough to keep pursuing it. Mm -hmm. um, but the transition, to, I, I also slightly recognised, um, you know, whenever this was, 12 years ago, whatever, that there's a massive thing that needs to be done for things to work. And I feared that um, if I was to try and do a sort of farm consultancy, farm by farm, I recognised within my lifetime I probably wasn't going to really move the needle and mm. and and so that was why i was like okay well you know technology is a thing you know mm. that seems smart so then it was a bit then i kind of thought okay well fine i'll think about technology and and that's when i started weaving these ideas together speaking to loads of people and i was fortunate enough actually then to end up being in ordnance surveys innovation program so weirdly yeah. I went down to Ordnance Survey, I said, I've got this idea for a piece of mapping software, you've got to help me. Mm. And in the first meeting they said, oh, I don't know how we're going to do that. Mm. Sorry, Tim. I went back six weeks later and I said, no guys, you really do need to help me. Mm. And it just so happened 
it was just then that they'd launched the Ordnance Survey Innovation Hub Geovation in London. So they said, look, just call this guy. Don't really know what he's doing, but it's some innovation thing. Go and chat. Yeah. So I called them up, went straight up to London and walked into this massive empty room with two guys sat on chairs and a coffee machine. And that was the Ordnance Survey's uh, sort of Geovation. And so I was like, guys, here's my idea. You know, it's the innovation lead, the head techie. And great, we started building this plan. And that was, I was oh my God, this thing is possible. Mm. And then they said, hey, well, Tim, actually, we're starting an innovation program, a six-month innovation program in, in two months' time. Apply. And, you know, if you get in, then great. Mm. So I did that. I was accepted. It started on my birthday. One of those weird things. <laughs> and six months, met loads of people within DEFRA, within Land Registry, within Ordnance Survey, and had a proof of concept. And that was enough to go out to farmers and estate owners and um, land agents and say, guys, would this make sense? And that was enough validation to raise the first round of investment. So it's kind of been this very organic journey from like an original um, recognition of, you know, what the problem was and maybe how I could contribute. Doing all this thinking, ending up with a few things like falling into place. And, you know, yeah, a few years later, you know, we've got 40% of farmland in England and we're working with corporates and governments to make sure the investments into landscapes are really effective. So we're, in my head, although this is probably, probably going to be the same until the day I die, we're still very much day one of the plan. You know, this yeah. is phase one. And um, because I just think there's so much to do. But anyway, so that, that's been... My, that's <laughs> there been, is so much to do. That's there, there's so much yeah. to do. So that's yeah. been the journey to date. So from the farm to the conversation with my granddad, the recognition of the problem, the idea of okay technology the fortuitous set of events that came together um mm. until yeah we're sat here having this conversation that's it yeah well yeah i mean similar you know there's so many as you say there's so much to do um you know and my view is not enough people are hearing about the fantastic stuff you're well it's actually our original conversation yeah, yeah. that sparked the whole kind of podcast idea yeah so you know one of our pub conversations yes it was you know so um you know and here we yeah exactly here we are so it's really interesting how these things sort of get going and take off and, and move forward, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's, there's just so much happening in so many different areas. I yeah. also wanted to ask you a little bit um, about, because um, we've talked a lot about the future of cities as well, kind of yeah. over a bit. Um, so we don't have to necessarily air all of it. That might but, be a big conversation, yeah. <laughs> but um, we, um, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on kind of the future of food production in like yeah. the hydroponic side oh, of things. Oh God. Because obviously there's a massive Agriculture is going through a really interesting period. Obviously, yes. it's facing this huge regeneration. There's huge opportunities now with offices and warehouses being abandoned or not used in cities um, to produce food where it is needed. Yep. Um, and that has a huge opportunity to take large areas of land out of, yep. out of management. So if you take a, a large supermarket, yep. a single supermarket um, sort of sized farm as, as it could be, yep. um, as it would be, um, can replace 700 acres of farmland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, there's, there's a hugely interesting kind yeah. of thing coming up there around all of that, but it's not applicable to everything. Yeah. So it's not applicable to a lot of kind of arable products, like the core staples, it's not necessarily applicable to at the moment. Yeah. It's more like lettuces and fruits and things like I that. I know. So it's not a, a solution to all of agriculture's troubles. I know. Um, but there is a very interesting opportunity there. So is this something yeah. you've kind uh, of pondered and a lot of people bringing this up or...? No, not many people are bringing it up. I don't know whether I should share my full thoughts, but I might end up doing that. Um, how shall I start? I totally agree that this is a fundamental question to open up. And this may be slightly why I talk about land up being kind of phase one of the journey, because like I say, fundamentally, what we need as a foundation for society is strong ecological roots. If we don't have that you know, if, if we deplete all the rivers, we pollute all the rivers, we destroy all the ecosystems, we cause desertification, climate change gets out of control, not much point, yeah. you know, being here. Um, so fundamentally, we need that root set and then we can kind of create that, um, you know, societal expansion and self-transcendence, whatever we want to call it, but basically having a much better time. Um, and then, but, but so in, in that you have the next question, population growth. Obviously, cities tend to just expand, consume. Um, one concern that I have, although this is a bit more philosophical, is I fear how much of people's income ends up going back into either rent or mortgages or whatever. It's just a... And, and, and that, that... I mean, again, it's probably a bit... But, but what I'm concerned about is that keeps people on a rat race. Yeah. 
and people do not do what they know in their heart they want to do. And you speak to so many people, well, and they're like, I yeah, would no love security. To, no security. Yeah. I would love to live my life doing this. I'd love to spend more time with my kids. I really would love to get, but I can't because I have to pay my mortgage. I have to pay my rent. And so, so that's an issue. Secondarily, at the moment, I still think the kind of unit cost per person is really, really scary. Like the amount of carbon that each person consumes, whether that's just living in a house and heating mm -hmm. and lighting and everything else, and the, but also the food they consume and just just the unit the amount of cost that every human incurs for carbon and for energy is just ridiculous and we cannot carry on like that if we're going to do whatever we want to do is on this planet while we're here so what i think is going to be the most powerful thing and this may not even be in our lifetimes maybe it will hopefully it will i personally think architecture is going to be the next massive transition in the way that humanity occupies the planet and so what i think although i don't think i've ever talked to anyone about this particularly um is i think so for example you look at things like what foster and partners are doing you know there's there's just incredible you know and, and norman foster was you know uh, a student of buckminster fuller buckminster fuller came up with the geodesic dome the concept of the trim tab this idea of doing more with less and i just think that Foster and Partners, some of the projects they've worked on, you kind of the Mexico City airport that they were looking to do and things like that, it shows how really, really smart design thinking can be applied to architecture in such a way that you could massively support human life, human well-being. Um, the point you make about aquaponics and, and food production, keeping that very much closer in proximity to where humans are living. If the if the buildings were built at the scale they may need to be, which may have to occupy lots and lots of people, you would cut the um, energy cost per person, you cut carbon cost per person, you cut the food impact cost per person, you'd cut the actual cost to live within that residence would be massively reduced because you get the economies of scale of the size of infrastructure. You would massively reduce the land impact of people's consumption needs and requirements. You'd cut down the need for roads and public transport because everyone would be contained within a place that they're really able to thrive. So I kind of feel like if society, if humanity is going to be able to continue to thrive, we need to create more wilderness areas. We need more conservation areas. We need more we biodiversity. Need hive cities is what we need. <laughs> and we and we we and I. But I think inside that model, and I can't quite visualize this because I've <laughs> never been into. It, but I suspect if it was done properly, there's enough light, air, plants people society there was less cost per week for living that would be an amazing potential place for people to be and i think people naturally get a lot of um satisfaction from solving problems i think yeah. we all love to solve problems and i don't think there's any shortage of problems they will just be more um transcendent problems to solve mm. um you know we are all yeah doing more with less right now we don't have to go out and kill every animal we eat right we don't you know indeed humanity is trying to move to a point where we do more with less and actually yeah. we're able to kind of be more our full selves it's kind of i think our underlying drive as a species and i think this kind of environment would really allow us to fully be who we're meant to be and wanting to be so i think we need to create more space for nature we need to reduce the impact of people on the planet we need to mean make people able to do what they care about in a way that's really cost efficient, helps them fulfill what they're up to. Um, and I think architecture is going to be a huge component of that. So, yeah, but I don't think I've ever told anyone that. So anyway, here we go. Well, we need, we need a, I think we need a pint. Yeah, another pint. Yeah, another yeah, pint. yeah, yeah, 100%. But, you know, no, I, I agree. I think, you know, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I'm looking at building a house at the moment, yeah. but I don't think houses are necessarily the future. You know, because they can't be. We can't keep they sprawling can't to the extent we are. Yeah. You know, we need to be smarter with resources. Yep. Um, and smarter in terms of time and everything yep. else. And you know, if we're able to create systems that are incredibly resilient, yep. um, that's what we've got to do. Yeah. Um, you know, and if we need to cut down using materials, that's what we've got to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got to start thinking, you know, and the government actually touched on something a while ago where they were saying, you know, the UK's got the lowest houses in, in Europe. You know, a lot of, you know, you get more of these kind of small blocks of flats like you, get, you know, see in Paris and parts of London yep. and, and other places too, but largely we're not really doing that. And actually we need to start thinking about how we make it denser, yep. but, not in the kind of the Soviet style. Yes, correct. Um, definitely not that way. 
but more, you know, but then there are some principles from that that are actually really interesting. You know, I, my wife's from Belarus, so I've spent a bit of time there. And there's a really, really strong community feel yeah, between is, a yeah. lot of these spaces because yeah. they're all connected by green space. Yeah. The buildings, you know, really need a good look at. Yeah. But, um, you know, if you can solve that side and use a lot of the new technologies we have with green roofs, yeah, yeah producing food where it is, yeah. you know, there's such an opportunity to kind of get people engaged get people um, living in a healthier environment. Yep. You know, you remove the need for cars. You know, we don't need a lot of these things that we currently have now if you're able to do that. Correct. You know, most people I know now work from home. Yep. You know, not everyone, you know, I know a lot of engineers and builders and stuff who don't, but actually, you know, my business is that we're all based at home. Yep. Um, and more and more people are. So actually, you know, we can rethink what we kind of need. And if there's more yep. facilities, more recreation opportunities and a better kind of better access to resources, better health, better quality of life, all of those things, yeah. you know, that's really something, as you say, we've got to strive for and to get to. Yeah. But it comes down to very difficult, challenging decisions of how do we fundamentally change the way we design cities. Yeah. And, you know, that's something I'm slightly involved with, I suppose, but, you know, not at a city level. Um, you know, we're still doing things plot by plot here. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it, you were starting to see it happen because of things like the green belt. And that's yeah. why, the, another reason why the green belt is so important is because it has to drive that innovation in use yeah. within cities. Yeah. Um, but the green belt itself has to be used much better, which is where, you know, Land App comes in to make that more accessible and yeah. better designed and giving benefits back to people. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a real paradigm shift taking place at the moment. And people, people know all these things. You know, you yep. talk to anyone at any level, they kind of go, yeah, well, things have got to change. Yeah. But taking that leap is very, very yeah. challenging. It's difficult. It's not the norm. No. You know, but actually we've got to start, you know, thinking about these things and thinking, okay, right, what's the 100-year plan? Yeah, definitely. Which some cities do. You know, Singapore does it, 100-year plan. Yeah. Um, you know, parts of Singapore city are owned um, on a 100-year lease. Yeah. So when that 100 years comes up, They've had that time to build new accommodation that's better, that yep. meets the challenges of that part of the city. And then they move all of those people because they're on a lease into that area. And, yep. and it has to be better than what they're currently in. Yep. Now, a lot of countries say that and don't do it. Yeah. So obviously it's an aspiration, but that means a city can adapt and change and respond to the various challenges it's, being, it's facing at the time. Yeah. And that's what we've got to start looking at in the West because you know, it's, it's too, you know, we're going too far yeah and the wrong way unfortunately i think i agree i think that long-term view is fundamental i just you can't make i don't think informed decisions that have clout when looking at a short-term time horizon because mm. you, you just don't give yourself the time to invest and actually you know derive the benefits of the investment and then grow from there mm. so i'm i i was so i'm very fortunate my uncle spent a lot of time living in the amazon and you know lots of interesting stuff like that and anyway and he has uh, taught kids for you know his whole life and he very much brought in kind of the native american wisdom kind of as part of the education process to help people kind of build wisdom as well as just the pure education and a huge component which he always used to talk to me about is this idea of native americans used to use this seven generations thinking mm -hmm. you know they would process a lot of the decisions through that lens of you know what impact would this have on seven generations and i think that's really really important because mm -hmm. and i think that's you know, somewhat what's caused me to maybe think slightly whatever the way I think, but it's fundamentally, as a foundational level, what do we need as a species? What are we trying to do? Where are we trying to get to? Okay, cool. And then I think that's just kind of helped, yeah, me paint the pictures of, okay, cool, well, like, how can we get models that work, that are mm. internationally scalable? You know, how can, what would that lead to? Or well, naturally it would lead to probably more people, yeah, living in the way that we just explained. Um, and, you know, where might that end up leading people? And then the big question is, you know, what are we trying to get to anyway? Like, yeah. what, are, what is this all about? And I think that multi-generational perspective, I think, helps address and answer some of the bigger questions that we have. And I think creates an alignment, which is very hard to do when you're just looking at short-term time horizon problem solving. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think forestry gave me that perspective because yep. obviously when you plant a tree, you're not planting it for yourself. You plant, you know, if it's oak or something, you're planting it for two yep. or three generations time. Yeah. So we've always had to have that kind of, yeah, long-term thinking yep. um, in approach to basically every project we did at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, and we're doing the same with landscape. How are people going to use this in the future? How's it going to change? How do we make it so it is adaptable yep. going forward? Um, you know, and that's a real, it is a real challenge, but it's a real opportunity is what yeah. it is, you know, and a lot of these things are incredibly rewarding. They can give people a real sense of purpose, um, you know, and there's a, they're great projects to get involved with for yeah. at all different levels. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's just interesting to, yeah, just 
you know, sometimes reflect on what creates fulfillment. It, it often is about giving back. It often is about service. It often is about some kind of legacy that you can see resulting from the work that you're doing. And um, I don't know, I just think that's a nice way to approach life. Because I mean, work, the nine to five, whatever, it's, it's essentially, I think it's trying to contribute something that allows more to happen, you know, mm. good return on investment for the time that's spent. And I think if we get more people doing that, thinking about that way, you know, that way, and I think the environmental social governance you know, reporting that needs to come into corporates and kind of that, you know, yeah, the, the whole natural capital market and this idea of the circular economy, I think it all kind of creates these questions of how can we contribute to something more than ourselves and, and that be a really, yeah, powerful way of living and using time while we're here. Definitely, no, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. And that could be a really great point to end on. Um, so thank you so much for, yeah. for joining us and, um, telling us all the incredible things you're up to. You yeah, know, it's well, fascinating. Th thank you, Nile. And I, I have to say, I think this is great. I think the more that these conversations come together, you know, who mm. knows, you know, watching all of the episodes, like what new ideas might spark off the back of that and what mm. networks could form. So yeah, thank you for having me. It's well, certainly. very welcome. To share. Hope to have you back soon and hear how it's developed. Yeah, with pleasure. Yeah. It's important to remember that sustainability doesn't just relate to the environment, it relates to your finances as well. That's why we switched to Beans Accountants. Beans operate on a package system, so you always know where you stand. We halved our accountancy costs when we moved to them and one of our associates moved to them as well and reduced theirs by two thirds. With free tax advice, accountancy support and everything else they offer, you can't go wrong. So make sure you check out Beans Accountants in the description below. I really hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in finding out more about farming, nature and how the UK used to be, then check out our episode with Ted and Jill. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share to friends and colleagues who might be interested in the series. And a huge thank you to our sponsor Beans Accountants and our incredibly kind supporters Gillian Goodson Design and the Birmingham Botanical Gardens. And of course NDLA and Monster Don for powering this episode. 